Thanks for checking out the Refuge Official Podcast. Wherever you're from, we hope that this message will encourage you and help you grow in your relationship with God. One of the things that we, uh, as leadership at Refuge, something I've prayed for and Deb has prayed for for years is, God, give us a team. A team that we can work with so that we can effectively reach our community and beyond. You know, God always works through a team. He works through individuals within that team, but he raises up a team. And one of the things as we were looking at the scope of, of the future and the vision of this ministry, we believed it was important to have a position that we call our next-gen leader. Now, that simply is the next generation. As we invest in the next generation... And so Jeff Prentice is our next-gen leader. So he oversees our children's ministry, our youth ministry, our young adult ministry. And there's a track that when we begin to invest and pour into the lives of young people, we're preparing a generation. And so I want to come on up here, Jeff. I, I thank God for this man and his wife, Marissa. She leads worship. And to, together, their team, uh, they attended Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry in Redding, California. Uh, they have a history of, of serving in capacities and worship and leadership and, and young adults and all that. There's an anointing on this young man, and, and he's young. You might not think he's as young as I do, but he's younger than me, for sure. <laughs> but... I believe God sent him and Marissa here to be part of this work, to be part of this vision. And, and, and there's a connection in our hearts and vision to what God's doing in central Wisconsin. And, and so we're privileged today to have Jeff speak. And, and I want you to truly listen because he's going to take on a big topic today about the Temple of Solomon. That's when the Rise and Fall series. That's a pretty heavy topic, but I believe it's going to be impactful. So... Prepare your hearts and receive from this man of God. Jeff, I love you. Appreciate you. We're glad you're part of Refuge. Part of the team. Thanks, Pastor. Thanks. Well, hey, good morning. Super good to be with you guys uh, this morning. I get the privilege of getting to spend some time on this stage on a fairly regular basis doing doing worship and things, and I usually hang out right about there, but... um, it's really fun to, to be able to speak to you guys this morning. And just before, before we get into the, the message and the Word of God this morning, I just wanted to take a minute um, just to uh, do something. October is, if you don't know, October is Pastors Appreciation Month. And we have pastors to be very thankful for. Give them a round of applause. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And it's, I mean, it's so difficult to describe, you know, because we get to see each other in this big corporate setting on a Sunday morning, but there's stuff that happens between the week, and we get to spend time in the trenches and in the office here together and, and doing a relationship. And, and I can stand here before you guys today and say that we, Marissa and I, chose the assignment here at Refuge and answered the call of God in our lives, not because of amazing theology, not because of amazing worship, not because of... Um, 
the location halfway between both of our parents who we love and some of whom are here today. Thanks, Jeff and Peggy. Although those are great things, we chose to serve here at Refuge because we answered the call to follow leaders who we could follow and we felt like God was blessing for a time and in a season for this place. So Pastors Matt and Deb, I just have so much honor in my heart for these two and I'm so thankful for the blessing that they are in our lives and the things that they've stood by us through even in this past 14, 15 months, whatever it is that it's been since we've moved here officially. So um, you guys will get to hear bits and pieces of that story more and more, but appreciate them. If you guys get a chance, write them a card, give them a gift, love on our pastors really well. We're thankful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, like they said, my name's Jeff. I'm going to talk about, um, continue our Rise and Fall series and, and talk about Solomon's Temple this morning. But before we get into that, I just want to play a short video of a little piece of my life. I didn't get permission for this, but I thought I would just do it anyways. All right. It's Smith. That's my nine-month-old son. We went to the pumpkin patch yesterday, and we had a good old time. So doesn't that look like fun? Aww. I'm just so proud of our growing family. So I just like sharing that stuff when I get a chance. But yeah, we're super, we're super in love and it's a blessing to be um, with family and not, uh, not only under the cover of amazing pastors, it's good to be undercover, amen, to have a spiritual covering on your life with pastors and a church family, but also the covering of amazing parents and, and grandparents to our baby boys. So we're thankful for you guys. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's get into it. So Rise and Fall series, you kind of saw the Jenga blocks on the screen here, falling down, rising up. We've talked about the past couple weeks. We talked about Noah and the ark, this crazy plan to build this enormous boat that was going to save this family and animals two by two and this crazy story. We learned all about that. Last week we heard from pastors and we dedicated some wonderful children. My Smith was one of which on this stage. And we talked about the walls of Jericho and how the Israelites marched around that city seven times, uh, and they gave a mighty shout of praise to the Lord, and those walls fell flat, and the people walked across and were able to, to take the city in the name of the Lord. So it's been powerful. A scripture um, that we talked about there I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you as we get into the message today. But before we do that, I just want to um, uh, open with a word of, word of prayer on my part here. So let's, let's bow our heads here. Thank you, Jesus. We're so thankful. You're such a good leader in our lives. You're the master architect. You've uh, had your hand over all of creation, all of history, before history began and after it ends. God, you are the Alpha and the Omega. And we just want a glimpse, uh, just a little bit of your presence and your character and who you are this morning, Jesus. Would you show yourself to us and would you use me a humble vessel to carry a revelation of who you are and the love that you have and the plan that you have for each of us in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we ready for the word? Let's do it. So Joshua 1.9, we talked about this in, in the, the, the battle of Jericho. I think we have that scripture on the screen. I just wanted to review that today because it's, it's a promise that God gives us. And as we talked about last week, it's one of the promises that occurs the most frequently throughout all of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and quoted in the New Testament from there. And it says this, have I not commanded you, not a, not a suggestion, or a, or a, um, but, a, but a command. He says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not 
be terrified. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. He's with us wherever we go, whether it's into battle, whether it's at home in bed sick. Can I just get, can we just get real right away? I don't like to warm up. Let's just get real. He's with us wherever we go. He's with us wherever we go. Whether that's in the depths of depression, whether that's in the depths of bankruptcy and financial distress, whether that's into the, the glory of God in, in the heavenlies, whether that's, um, there's not a place where we can be separated from the love of God. He said he's with us wherever we go. And, you know, this, this whole thing, you know, we're, we're newish on staff over a year here, but I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't, I didn't sign up. I don't, I'm not doing this for, for, for the money, for the, for the spotlight, certainly. I just, I just want you to know that I do it for the love, the love of the Lord and the love for this, for this church family, because I don't know everyone in this room, but it's my position here. I, I love you guys, and I believe in every one of you guys, and I believe in what we're accomplishing here together. And so when I, when I read the scripture, the Lord is with you wherever you go. Wherever we go, wherever you go, he's with us. And I just want to speak from that place this morning. Because the temple of Solomon is a story about God's presence being made manifest on the earth in a way that was unique and had not happened in all of uh, the history of creation. So can we just define the word temple for a minute? Because we don't use the word temple a lot. Temple is, uh, you know, you think of like a synagogue or like, is it like a mosque or something? Or, you know, it's a holy building, but what is a temple? So I just looked it up, and this is the first thing Google told me. Defining temple, it's a building devoted to the worship or regarded as the dwelling place of a god or god's or other objects of religious reverence, okay? So the temple's a building devoted to worship or regarded as the dwelling place of God. Can we say that? Makes sense? And so um, I'm just going to take you through just a little bit of Scripture and, and outline this amazing story of the preparations that took place, the construction, the dedication, and the eventual destruction of Solomon's temple that happened in Scriptures, happens in primarily in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel um, in the Old Testament. And so just for a little bit of timeline and context here, this, this is the first formal temple that was constructed as a house of the Lord. The, and it was, you know, arguably the finest structure or building that had ever been, like, erected on the face of the earth up to this point since the dawn of creation. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but this is, this is the story. Okay, so we, we know that there is... Um, I'm going to review some characters. We've got King Saul. He's not such, not such a good guy, um, and he kind of messes things up for, for, the, for the Israelites and everything. Then King David comes along, who succeeds him, and David is, is a better guy. He's a man after God's own heart, he, he calls him. And David is, is, is a guy who um, was a shepherd boy, David and Goliath. He slew the giant. David, we see all kinds of stories in Scripture. He wrote a massive chunk of, uh, he wrote the, the Psalms. He's a worshiper and a psalmist, and we'll speak some more about that as well. But um, the temple of Solomon was designed by King David. 
It's called the Temple of Solomon because David's son Solomon was the one who constructed it. But David, uh, in his time, spent a lot of his years reigning, kind of cleaning up some of Saul's messes who had been disobedient to the Lord and in, in worship in a lot of places. And so David spends a lot of time actually at, at war, overcoming nations who are trying to uh, kill everybody and, and take over uh, the promised land and everything like that. So David spends a lot of time cleaning up those messes, but David has this vision um, to, to build a house for the Lord because the Ark of the Covenant, another fancy thing, is, is this place where God is like, I'm going to dwell as a symbol in this, in this fancy box, and we're going to carry it around, and it's going to be where my presence is. If, um, if you guys remember a few, few weeks back when we had our guest Gary McIntosh here, he talked about following the cloud when they were in the desert and in exile, and there was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day that would lead the Israelites around, and they, they took the Ark of the Covenant with them wherever they would go. So up until this time, even in King David's reign, the Ark was still basically kept in, in a tent. And David had this vision. He's, he wanted to um, bring the people of God together. He wanted to centralize politically, and so he wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem and build this amazing temple for the Lord because it would be a place that was worthy of the God who you know, created the universe and David was, was in love with here. So that's, that's our context here. Um, can, we, can we look at uh, that first Chronicles scripture here? David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced. So David had his son Solomon already at this point. And the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I'll make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. And David never saw the construction of the temple. I just think that's an amazing thing. David was willing to make all the preparations. He had the vision, but he actually never saw the construction or the fruit of all that work in his lifetime. How many of us will have the vision? We'll be able to cultivate that kind of a vision to build something that our generation will never see. I mean, that takes big, big vision. But isn't that the kind that I want? I don't, I don't want to think with just like my, you know, 80 years or whatever I have on this earth in mind. I want to think of... You know, when I look at my little boy bouncing on a hayride and a pumpkin, I want to build for that and beyond, you know. I want to leave behind a legacy in my own life. And David had a unique revelation of this. He made extensive preparations before his death. The construction of the temple, I want to talk about this a little bit. So constructed under King Solomon is around, like, let's just say 1,000 B.C. 1,000 B.C. is a pretty good ballpark. We don't know exact, exact dates, but... It's pretty there. And um, I could go into so much detail about this, but what you need to know, let's get that slide of the, I got uh, a little artist rendering. There's jillions of these on the internet, but this is like the inner court and the most like, this is where the spotlight is in the temple courts. And it was kind of a complex, but this is like what's in the middle of it. And it's the most expensive part. So it was constructed around, you know, a thousand BC, took about seven, eight years to build. And it was detailed, meticulous, and extravagant. God gave um, instructions for how to build it. You know, 60 cubits by here, and then you should have like a thing over here. So they worked together with the Lord and downloaded these blueprints, and they, they, uh, they built the thing. And it was extravagant. They used mostly cedar, the finest uh, wood from Lebanon. They used gold. The thing was encrusted with iPhone 11s. <laughs> Just kidding. But in all reality, the cost to build, it's so hard to estimate, but the cost to build this structure by modern-day standards, I was really interested in that because, you know, they, David spent a lot of time 
harvesting the resources to build this thing because, uh, yeah, I'm just going to tell you about it. By the most conservative estimate today, it would be like at least like $140 billion or so. And somebody said as much as like if you take into account, like if you tried to build it today, first of all, you'd start World War III because the Dome of the Rock is currently built on the Temple Mount where this temple once stood in uh, Israel, but um, it was like, they're like, it could have been up to like a trillion dollars. So even if it was just $140 billion or something like that, that's like the net worth of all of the country of Egypt. So if you just kind of like sold Egypt and we're like, we're going to do that. Or it would be, um, it took about, at that most conservative estimate of like $140 billion, it took um, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, speaking of Egypt, would have taken about 28 of those to rival at the time the same construction costs that it did to take this temple. So this thing is insane, insane, expensive, and as it should be, fitting for the glory of God on the earth. I mean, David was just like, how close can we get? We're never going to get there, but let's give it our best effort, and they gave it a good effort. So the dedication that happened here, um, they dedicated this temple, uh, temple to the Lord, and, and God was, was pleased with the extravagance that they had built into this thing at the time. I just um, wanted to, or before we skip off of this, you see this chamber, it's all gold-plated. The Ark of the Covenant is that little box that you see between those two giant lions with wings that are cherubim, that are gold-plated and carved out of wood and all this stuff. But that's like the Holy of Holies. That's the actual pinpoint of where the presence of God would dwell. And... Um, it was insane. So uh, just briefly, the dedication of the temple here that happened, uh, we have a scripture for that. When Solomon had finished praying, this is Second Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying to dedicate the temple, he had, he had sacrificed all these kinds of animals because um, it was what was required in the day. Uh, that's another sermon here. But when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from the heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. The glory of the Lord fills the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of animal sacrifice. Like I said, a message for another day. But the bottom line is this was an extravagant ceremony. The amount of wealth that's contained in, in that kind of livestock, it's insane. Um, the, tr- the temple stood for about 500 years. It was eventually destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II, and that's also another story that we won't get into. But it, it stood for a 500-year term of peace. And just for context, what does 500 years feel like? Okay, so 500 years ago from today right now, what was happening in history? Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci passed away about 500 years ago. Hernan Cortez had just landed in Mexico with the conquistadors to invade the the ancient Mexican empires and things like that. So that was about 500 years ago. So imagine this extravagant building stood for that period of time. That's a big chunk of time. And so why do we care? Why do we care about all this? The temple. What, what relevance does that have to us today other than, you know, a great lesson that we can honor God with, with our wealth and you can, you know, 
gather the nations and pull this kind of thing off. Well, here it is. I have a couple points for you guys this morning. The first thing is that it's all about the presence. It always was. It was all about the presence of God and finding a dwelling place for the Lord on the earth. God's presence actually preceded creation. You see in Genesis 1, uh, there was darkness, and it says the Spirit of God hovered over, over the waters and, and in the abyss, and, and God invaded creation as he, as he created it. But um, God's presence preceded creation. The whole idea of building the temple was, was, like I said, to provide this place where people could relate to and access the presence of God, to gather around the presence. Because up to this point, they, they had no physical reference point, no permanent place where God lived. And so it was a little bit more of an aimless way or a, uh, it didn't feel like you were on solid ground uh, for this people group. I want to talk about, in, in the presence, I want to talk about King David briefly again, as he was really a, a prototype of a worshiper. We read the Psalms, and I feel like, I don't know about you guys, I feel like I can relate to a lot of the, the things that King David says and the way that he worships God. I think he, King David pulled into his day a kind of worship that was actually reserved for another, for our day. He pulled into his day a, a revelation of worship. Um, uh, the Lord had said in, in, of David in Acts 30, 13, 22, said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And one of the reasons that I think David found favor with the Lord is because David was a worshiper of passion and extravagance. He demonstrates that in the way that he uh, makes plans to build the temple with the Lord and, and sees that those are carried out through his son. But also, um, you know, we could look at other places in Scripture. He, he writes the Psalms, these love letters to God and pouring out his heart, being honest about his sorrow and his, uh, and his joy, all of these things. But there's, there's a story in Second Samuel 6 where uh, when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem so that in preparation for the construction of the temple through his son Solomon, that David actually, um, he's like in his loins dancing before the Lord basically making a fool out of himself. And the reason he did this, I was doing some reading, is that the, when, they, when they would conquer a nation or take a king captive or hostage, they would parade him before as they came home. They would parade him before them, kind of undignified like that. And David, David did that, it says, in an epiloincloth or something is the, is the translation that it that he uses. But it was basically, he stripped down to his priestly undergarments, all right? And he allowed himself to be undignified before the Lord as a symbol of saying, I have been conquered by this king, by Yahweh, and I'm going to parade myself before my own people as a symbol of I've been conquered by my king. I have that level of submission in my life. And his wife, her name was Michael. We wouldn't name a a woman Michael usually these days, but that was her name. Um, She was pretty disapproving. She was like, honey what are you doing? That's not going to look very good. Anybody ever had one of those moments? But David, David was intent. He was like, I will become even more undignified than this for the cause of honoring my king. David was extravagant like this. There's uh, just looking at extravagant worship. There's a place in the, in the New Testament in Matthew, um, in Matthew 26, 8, there's a woman who, who comes and she has her alabaster jar and she breaks it and she anoints Jesus' head with this expensive perfume, all of it. She just plops it all in his head. You know, you just imagine like a, a whole bottle of plus three-in-one that you just crack the cap off and just, you know, you just let it drain all over him. I mean, 
It's like, what, what is she doing? Especially if it's really valuable, which it was, it was super valuable. And the disciples kind of get mad. They're like, Jesus, why did you let this lady waste all this perfume on you? She could have at least sold that and given it the money from the sale to the poor, right? Valid point. I mean, that would have done good as well. But Jesus says, that's true, but don't miss the message. He says, she's chosen the good thing here to, to waste it all on, on me. It was okay. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but Jesus rebuked the disciples for their indignancy at this woman's extravagant act of worship. I don't think the devil minds tame worship. To have, to, we can be uttering truth, but without heart, I don't know. It says to worship the Lord your God with all of your, your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, your spirit, your everything is the, is the message there. And I don't know. I just think that we can say, God, you're real. I believe in you, Jesus. But so does the devil. He's not like, is God real? He's like, of course God is real. Of course Jesus is the son of God. I tremble in fear at that, but it's not like new information to me. So that's not like uh, it's, it, it's worship to God to declare that, but it's, there, there's more available in our worship experience. Does that make sense? The spirit of fear attacks our voice because he's afraid of what's inside of us. If he can, you know, keep the, the believers of this earth at, at bay and in an intimidated and kind of reduced state, that sounds like a win to me. You know what I mean? So when we worship, though, we silence the voice of fear. When we lift our voice and engage with the presence of God and say, God, I will allow myself in body and spirit and mind to become, dare I say, undignified for you, we silence the voice of fear. I don't want fear to be my leader in my life. And I'm, I'm on a journey of walking into more and more freedom of that in my personal life. I think, um, you know, our expression is something that's so important. I don't know about, about you guys, but uh, if you're ever in a relationship where you love someone a lot, use my marriage as an example, it challenges my expression. I would say that in the context of, a, of marriage and mercenized marriage, our, um, there are higher highs and lower lows. Anybody resonate with that? That, you know, it's like when it's good, it's really good, and when it's bad, it's so bad. You know, it, it can, you know what I mean? It's like, it's hard for, if we were not in a good place at this moment, it would be really hard for me to be on this stage right now doing something. But you cultivate a relationship where it's like, I believe in you and I love you even, even when there's, you know, something going on or things like that. But that's real life. But we challenge each other. And, and um, you know, I, I think that since I've been with Marissa, she's uh, released me into more freedom than I thought I knew that I had inside of me to be expressive, and it's not, it's, it's okay to share my feelings and to say, I love you liberally, and things like that, and we, we have this little sign in our house, and a, a little letter board, and I recently found the letters that I had lost since Smith was born, so it said, like, baby P coming 2019, here it is, October, we put a new one up, it says, put on your positive pants, and then we display it in our living room, because sometimes we need a reminder, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bravely put on my positive pants and let myself be um, humiliated, not in a, like a bad way, but in a sense of be humbled by someone who's a teacher, someone who God has placed in my life to, to actually heal the wounds 
that are in my life. And I think Jesus can do the same thing for us. Will we surrender to the level that he can actually chisel away things from our life and make us who we're created to be? David writes some beautiful psalms. I'm not going to read those right now. Get into the psalms. It's so good. So the invitation, the invitation in this whole, this whole thing, the, the construction of this temple in the way we are demonstrated extravagant worship, the invitation is participation. That's my second point. The invitation is participation. There's a book that we started reading recently. It's called The Eternal Current. And it's this metaphor for the kingdom of God is like a great river. Everybody close your eyes and imagine this great river flowing through, you know, the woods or a field or, you know, somewhere beautiful and nature-based. The kingdom of God is like this river. And, you know, the goal is to learn how to swim, to, that we can get swept up in the current of this, this great river and experience this relationship with God. And there's so many times where we can... We can sit on the sidelines and we can learn about rivers and how they work. Or we can, you know, dip our toe in the water and say, oh, that's so nice. You know, or we can, you know, observe other creatures or other people swimming and be like, that's a good swimmer. They need some help swimming right there. But, you know, how silly is that? We, the goal is actually to learn how to swim, to jump into the river and be swept up in it. And it's like that with our faith sometimes, that our goal is to participate in the move of God, that we all have a role to play in building the kingdom of God and being developed into the people that he's made us to be. It's a difference in having a church that's for the people and a church of the people. You might recognize that language from Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address in in the 1800s. He, He says that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom that and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. He's actually quoting um, a Christian theologian, John Wycliffe, in the 1300s, about 500 years earlier, who was talking about the Bible. He said, the Bible is the government for, or of the people, by the people, and for the people. And as we, we base our church on the Word of God, if we were a church that was only for the people, it might not look so good. I'll explain that in a minute. But we want to be a church that's of the people, where there's, where there's part participation, you know, where, uh, where none of us are, are elevated above the others in terms of our, our, our qualifiedness or gifting to, to minister to God or to each other out of a love for God. Uh, a, um, in a church that's for people versus a church of the people, leadership in a church for the people might look like kind of top-down directing, um, kind of like this dictatorship kind of thing. In a church that's of the people, Empowerment is emphasized. The Church of People says, um, uh, you, you guys know Home, Deco, Home Depot's old slogan? They used to say, you can do it, we can help. It's kind of like that. That's, it's kind of like that. That's how, that's how um, we, we ought to, to worship and relate to the church. Worship versus, you know, coming and being a kind of like passively just like entertained by worship and being a spectator. There's an opportunity to, to engage with that and passionate expression. Evangelism, you know, versus it being, um, you know, the, the church's job where maybe you invite a friend to church so the pastor can, you know, share the good news of Jesus with them and maybe they'll enter into a relationship with him versus, you know, you, you have the tools and just let your life and your love be a testimony 
And yes, invite people to church, but if that's, if that's our only expression of introducing people to Jesus, you know, there's room to grow. You know, it's like missions. If, if we just picture missions like, oh, we're going to give some money to the church so they can, in turn, give it to people who need it, versus being engaged in our community and, our, you know, activism and, and things like that. I, I got to attend the Destiny Point Banquet last night. It's a, you know, it's an organization that was 10 years old this year of, you know, some women who just had a heart for a need that was being unmet in our community, just really normal people in the best way, normal people who just had a heart for other people who started this thing to bless these women who are in, in addiction and recovery and things like that. Like, how cool. They're, they're, they're people who have embraced that call of participation. They didn't say, how about the church does that? They're like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And guess what? Our church gets to support them. You know, we talk about church membership, you know. We could approach it from this position of possessiveness and trying to, like, retain people. And No, we want to be a church of the people where we have the freedom to empower and launch people into what's next for them if and when God calls them into something that's next. We want to, we want to develop people and be champions for them. So this the list of responsibilities and things to be a church of the people. It's not to it's not to burden us, but to empower us. Does that make sense? To to wake us up to the we have the ability to, and the freedom, and and the permission from God to participate in building the kingdom of God. And often God hides our our breakthrough in each other. You know, so yeah, it's it's good to be engaged. I just want to read this scripture in Ephesians chapter four. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. These are all gifts that each of us possess differently. So pastors and teachers, some of those people might be on staff at a church. Everybody else is going to not be, and they're not any less qualified for the ministry. Does that make sense? It's to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. And in the, under, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their, de- in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The last point here is, is we need to remember who we are and what we carry. And to talk about this a little bit more, I just wanted to show a video. It's about four minutes, but it just helps to me articulate the story of the temple in the presence of God, and what that means for us today in a, in a new covenant where Jesus has come and given us full access to God. The veil in that temple, in that holy of holies, was torn from top to bottom when Jesus hung on the cross and paid the price for us. And it opened the door to, for us to experience the presence of God in a way that all of history before Jesus' death and resurrection only dreamed of. So let's watch this short video here. Does that help contextualize that a little bit? I thought that was so cool how they just kind of merge art with the story of Scripture, the really big picture story of Scripture to explain how God's presence 
that once came to dwell in the temple. The temple rose and fell. There was another one that was built in its place. That fell again. That's history. That's dirt, bricks, gold, iPhone 11s, whatever it is. It turns to ashes eventually, but the presence of God does not. And so the question is, where does that go? God has chosen us in this new covenant to make us carriers of his presence. And so we, when we talk about, hey, this third point, remember who you are and what we carry. Let's look at that, that scripture in 1 Peter 2.5. One more time. 1 Peter 2.5. It says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just keep that up there for a minute. When he says a spiritual house, that's like the temple, right? That's us. We're the temple now. The holy priesthood. We are all priests is the, is the idea of that. We're all invited and qualified. Martin Luther, a great um, guy of the Protestant faith in the 1500s, said, coined this term, the priesthood of all believers. And what he meant by that is that there are no spiritual, uh, like, professional Christians, okay? We're all just doing this thing of faith together, and then there are those that are called to, um, to kind of pastor the communities of people who are figuring out how to do that together in their own city, in their own context. That's this, but we are all in this room. This is a priesthood of all believers. We're all qualified to do the work of the ministry, right? And it finally says offering spiritual sacrifices. It implies an action, a participation, right? James one twenty seven says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we have, we have this, this responsibility. And it's again, it's one that's not meant to, to bear like heavy on our shoulders, but to wake us up to the freedom that we have that, wow, we have the permission and freedom and, and the ability to make an impact for, for the glory of God and to help him build his kingdom. Not a, not a physical temple anymore in Jerusalem, not a physical church building in Stephen's Point, but a community of people. The church is the people. That's why um, he's, Peter says, you are like living stones, a bunch of living stones being built together into a spiritual house. Together we are the body of Christ. So good, that imagery. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. They said in the, in the video there, he said, we're like, we become mini temples. Pastor Matt has a friend who coined this term. He said, we're like porta temples. It kind of reminds me of like a stack of outhouses on a, on a truck passing me on the highway or something like that, except for we carry something much more holy, amen? All right, but um, a porta temple, it's because we're on the move. We're no longer confined to one physical dwelling place in Jerusalem. We have freedom. We're like the Ark of the Covenant that sprouted arms and legs and a body, and we can walk around and we carry the presence of God, and that means when I walk into my workplace, guess what? The presence of God enters there with me. When I walk into my family reunion or Thanksgiving with people, they've got stuff going on. Maybe I've got stuff going on, but you know what? I carry the presence of God with me, and by the grace of Jesus, I don't just warm up to whatever kind of atmosphere is in that room. I create the atmosphere because I'm not just a thermometer for the barometer of the spiritual climate going on here. I get to be a thermostat and say, God, where would you have me set the temperature here? You have power. 
inside of us. That's the thing the devil is threatened by. If we keep our worship tame, if we keep our, you know, he, we're getting held back in that way. We have the opportunity to offer something that's, that's extravagant. So look at this definition of temple again. It was this, a building devoted to worship or regarded as the dwelling place of God. That's us. We're the building that's devoted to worship, individually and corporately. We're the building that's devoted to worship and regarded as a dwelling place of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to um, 6, sorry, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, it said, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, it says. And that was the price that Jesus paid for us. But, wow, I'm a steward of this flesh and bone, you know? And how I use this temple to walk around this earth for my years here, you know, it's like, it's not like I live this life and just try to be good and then eternity begins when I pass away and enter the heavenlies. It's, no, when I enter a relationship with Jesus, eternity, the eternity clock is already ticking, if that makes sense. Eternity begins now. I don't have to to wait to build the kingdom of God. It happens right here. And it happens right here in this lifetime in a way that we will never have an opportunity to do so again once we pass into the next life, if that makes sense. When we're in heaven, we'll look back in this, at this life and celebrate, the, <laughs> celebrate all, everything that happened here. And I want to I look back and say, man, I was a good, I was a good steward. I want to be found faithful in the eyes of the Lord. We're all carriers of the presence of God. And sometimes that feels, it feels like it does. I mean, I, I keep saying it, but it, it can feel like a weighty thing. There are mornings where I wake up and I'm like, I'm not sure if I deserve to carry God's presence in me right now. Are you sure, God? Are you sure, God? Are you sure? But, I, I mean, that's, it's the gospel. It's, it's the part of of Jesus that, that sets it apart from everything else. There's no other faith tradition in the world where God would choose to use broken vessels to carry his presence, choose us in the midst of our imperfection because our imperfection is what magnifies his grace and his beauty and his glory and his majesty. I just say to you, if you're in this room this morning and you feel like an unworthy temple of the Most High God, I say that you are. And, and this life is just a journey of like recognizing our worthiness in God's eyes to steward his presence. And the greater revelation that we have of our worthiness in his eyes, the greater ability that we have to do something of impact for the kingdom and to love the people in our lives around us well. Joshua 1.9, he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged. For I am with you wherever you go. He's with us. He can't, we can't be separated from him. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And I've heard it said that this, the root of all evil is the suspicion that God is not as good as he says he is. The root of all evil is the suspicion that God is not good. If we, if we didn't doubt God's goodness, what reason for fear would we have? What place 
What foothold would fear have in our lives? If God was truly good, if he would catch us every time we fell, what risk would we not be willing to take for him? And for some of us, that risk that we need to take for him is in our own lives. It's just a step of obedience and saying, just eeping out that first, yes, Lord. I don't know what it means, but yes. I, I want that. I want to carry your presence. And for some of us, it's a, it's, a, it's a bigger yes. It's taking another step and saying, God, I, I want to I carry your presence well for the people in my life. And I actually want to value myself enough to realize that the gifts that you've placed inside of me, the people around me need that. The people around me need that. And I carry that presence. And I have the ability to make that impact. He's with us wherever we go. There's a song that's kind of wrecking me right now. You know, you ever listen to one of those and it's just like, ah, it just feels so good or it, it just feels so true or that just so describes what I feel the Spirit of God doing in my life or on this earth right now. And there's a song I think we're going to do for Awakening. It's called Waymaker. And uh, the chorus just says, it says, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. And it just says that a lot. <laughs> Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are. And as we declare that, sometimes you just got to declare something for it to ring true in your life, you know? Sometimes you just have to silence the voice of fear and offer your extravagant worship where nothing holds you back anymore. And you just say, God, I trust you, this great promise that you've given us, where there is no way you make a way. You're a way maker. You're a miracle worker. You're a promise keeper. The promise, I will be with you wherever you go, keeps that promise. That is who you are, God. That is who you are. That is who you are. Just, that's what, that's what worship is about for me, you know. That's why I love worship is because we just, we just get to declare things that, you know, the hymns are beautiful and they had a place in church history and I want to revisit hymns, but hymns were primarily theological declarations, they outline tenets of the faith and things that we believe, and it's good for teaching, especially in a church context where we spend less time teaching and more time um, in, um, in like sacraments and corporate worship liturgy and things, all of which are beautiful, and we honor those traditions of the church. But in, in, in our context, you know, there's something, you know, it's like, oh, worship songs today aren't as deep or, or profound, or we say le- things that are less deep, you know, Sometimes, but also, I think our, our praise songs today sound a lot more like the Psalms of David sometimes, where he's just crying out to God. And I, and I can go back and just read some. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this is Psalm 27, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That's enough just to be with him. It's enough. 
Psalm 73 says, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. He's just saying it's good to just be near God, just to be in his presence is enough. And he says he's with me. And I just say, God, I want to be with you. Because he can be with us without us being with him in a sense. Because a relationship happens two ways. And when God says, I want to step into your life and be with you, we have this invitation to step back and say, I accept that offer of your presence in my life. I will, I will accept not just the responsibility, but the blessed privilege that we can carry with lightness in the knowledge of grace and the knowledge of Romans 8, 1 that says there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We can say, yes, God, I will not only um, live my life for you, but I, I will choose to respond and be with you with my free will. I just want to pray for that this morning. Let's, can we all stand for a minute here? He's a way maker. He's a miracle worker. He's a promise keeper. He's a light in the darkness. He's good. He's worthy. He's worthy of the most extravagant building that the world had ever seen. Yeah. He's worthy of every offering we could ever bring. He's, he's, he's just worthy because he's that good. God, would you convince us of your goodness? Would you show us your love in a way that we would not be able to deny that you're you're, you're worthy of everything that we have to offer, God. Would we follow you extravagantly in our love, in our worship, in our giving, in our missions, in our evangelism, in our prayer, in anything that we have to offer you, God? Would we do it wholeheartedly, knowing that you're worthy and you're good? So I just say for anyone in this room tonight who feels like, and by tonight I mean this morning, you know, times of the day, you know, we're about to be flying to Florida, time zones, it's not that bad, two hours, but you know what I mean still, it gets wacky, if you're in this room this morning, and you just feel like you need to take a step towards the Lord and say, God, yes, you're with me, you said that, you've promised that in scripture, there's not a place that I can go, a depth that I can't return from, he's so willing, you know what I love? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane right before he was crucified on the cross he got down and he just started crying he said God he started sweating blood out of his pores this is an extreme medical phenomenon that's possible and he just said God he just said help you know would you take this cup from me he says he said God I'm about to bear the brunt of humanity's sinfulness on my shoulders and pay that price for all eternity and it was a heavy heavy weight to carry and he just said, help. And you know what happens when Jesus says, help? He gives me permission to also look to the Father and just say, God, help. I can be the perfect son of God, and I can still need your help and your presence in my life. What amazing permission that is. There's never a place where I'll have arrived enough where I no longer need the help of God. And God, would you move us to a place where... We, we just never stop asking for your help and your provision and your guidance and, and, and your revelation of who you are alive, God. Yeah, so if you're in that place this morning where you need to say, yes, God, I'm willing to take that baby step in your direction. You want to be with me? I think I want to be with you too. Would you just pray this with me?
to acknowledge his presence in the room today. Just take a minute to pause your mind and your heart and your emotions and just focus on his presence. God, we just believe you're in this room this morning. So I'm with you wherever you go. Well, we came to church this morning. You're here. You're here when we leave church, but you're here right now. God, you say that you dwell in the hearts of believers. You say you dwell where two or three are gathered in your name, and you say that you inhabit the praises of your people. We're about to give you a loud praise, God, so we know that you're in this room this morning. If you want to take a step towards God, would you just pray this out with me? Let's have everybody just pray this, because we all need a step towards God, don't we? Father God, forgive me for not believing you are as good as you say you are. God, we acknowledge that you're good and perfect, that you're a way maker, a miracle worker, a promise keeper, a light in the darkness. That's who you are. Thank you that you've chosen to be with us that you sent your son to pay the price that my sins deserved so that I might be with you also. God, I say yes to you in this moment. I say yes to your presence. Would you fill me with more of it? Would you teach me how to carry it well? Would you teach me how to value myself? Enough to be a threat to the enemy. Enough to see transformation happen in the lives of my loved ones. To see my addictions break off in the name of Jesus. Thank you, God. I say yes to you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Yeah, we get to spend our whole lives walking into that revelation. But if I can leave you with anything this morning, I just want to say that the presence of God is real. The presence of God is here. The presence of God lives in us. The presence of God is for us. And there's nothing we can't do with Him. Yeah, so would the Lord bless and keep you? Would He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious? We believe all people matter to God. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect further with Refuge, feel free to go online to wearerefuge.net or on social media at wearerefuge.